Welcome to the Million Dollar Body Podcast with your host, Nate Palmer. Hey, welcome back to the Million Dollar Body Podcast. I'm your host, Nate Palmer. Here today, I have the honor of being with John Berghoff. John is the inventor of the LEAF methodology. Companies like Facebook, BMW, NASA, TED, tons of other acronyms hired John to come in and tap into their collective wisdom to solve some of their biggest problems. Um, Christopher Lockett, author of Play Bigger, has been quoted as saying, John Berghoff is, is, the, <laughs> is to collective intelligence as Tony Robbins is to individual intelligence. And Jeff Hoffman, the founder of Priceline, has called John Berghoff before the group genius whisperer. John, welcome, how are you, man? Hey, Nate. I'm doing great, buddy. Really glad to talk. Glad to be here. Yeah, man. Thanks for making some time out of your day to chat with us. Hey, let's just dive in right now. Let's get to the important stuff right off the bat. John, Cool. how much do you bench press? <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I do a lot of push-ups, but it's been a little while since I put some weight there. Maybe I should do that, shouldn't I? <laughs> no, I just, I just like to ask, see, just, just to see what's, what's going on. Hey, man, I would love to talk a little bit about the LEAF Institute and some of the methodologies you use to, to become that group genius whisperer. It's so awesome. I, I'm happy to talk about that all day, obviously. So as, as long as you think, uh, as long as you and your listeners have an interest, I'll talk about anything you want. Yeah, yeah, can we, can we jump into that a little bit? Talk about um, the LEAF methodology, talk about some appreciative inquiry? Sure, is there a starting point or? I Can you just tell that. us a little bit about what you do when you go to a when you go into Army or Navy to go to NASA and to help solve them solve their problems? Yeah, yeah, happy to. Well, I, I think a good a good starting point is understanding you know why why would an organization even want have an interest in this method? And um, you know, for for me, I uh, I had an experience when I about ten years ago where I was brought into the Vitamix Corporation. They make really nice blenders, and. Um, and I had a situation where I was brought in and I was, I was the head of their direct sales organization and it was a massive responsibility. And I realized really quickly that as smart as I thought I was and um, I think I'm a smart guy, I realized that the amount of complexity and change that our organization was facing um, was far superior to my capability as one human being to solve those problems. So I had a team when I got there of about 200 people. When I'd left about four years later, we had grown to about 600 people. And, and one of the things I realized is that, is that what we were facing as an organization and what I was facing as a leader was a very simple situation where uh, the, because of the, the size and the complexity of the challenges, it was the way we were gonna survive and thrive was not gonna be me or a few people having the answers. It was gonna be about, um, because when complexity is higher, the value of answers goes down and the value of questions goes up. And it was gonna be about, how do we bring the right questions to more people in our organization so that collectively we can tap into our wisdom and, 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 and really strengthen our shared identity and ultimately have a collective sense of ownership around shaping our future. So, you know, the companies that bring us in are facing similar situations where they realize we need to figure out how to uh, tap into that collective intelligence, really enable a shared identity to be created, and ultimately to do it in a way where everybody feels ownership. And, and ultimately, those aren't even the reasons we're there. There's a deeper reason, which is, and sometimes we call it infinite, 
an infinite organization or an infinite type of leadership. Ultimately, we're there because the organization wants to figure out how to deliver its highest potential for the greatest good for the longest period of time into the future. And that's what our, our work is all about. And that's why someone would bring us in. And if I, in, in a sentence, one more sentence, you know, what exactly do we do? Because I'm pretty sure I haven't actually explained that. <laughs> you know, in, in the simplest terms, what we do is we design questions, we choreograph conversations built around those questions, and then we, and then we enable what we call deep pervasive listening, where we, we enable uh, a whole organization, sometimes hundreds or even a thousand or more people, we'll actually put everybody in a room all at once. One of our solutions is called a large group summit, where we'll have a whole series of conversations, some of it's very creative, and we allow everybody to hear many voices as we are tackling our biggest challenges or trying to shape our biggest opportunities for the future. So I know that might that, that certainly probably leaves a lot more questions for somebody than answers, but um, it's at least a teaser of, of what we do. Mm -hmm. I like that. And I, John, I really like what you said about, about crafting the perfect question, because I've, I've heard you say before that now with like the age of the internet, we have a ton of information at our disposal. So the entrepreneur of the future is not necessarily going to be providing answers, but rather coming up with the right questions to ask the correct people. Yeah, you know, question design is, uh, it's, I, I probably spend 30% of my waking hours literally designing questions. And, and sometimes we'll be going into an organization. I'll never forget, I, there was a, a large industry convention three years ago that I, I had been given the honor of kind of leading a team in designing and facilitating 400 people from about 40 countries in the name of the event, now forgive the name, it was uh, that the name is called the Global Forum for Business as an Agent of World Benefit. Basically, it's how do we come together as business leaders from all around the world and, and reimagine business as a force for good in the world. So it's very aspirational. And that particular event, you know, I, over three days of leading 400 people through some, uh, in some cases, very complex processes, I, I, I spent north of 100 hours literally trying to design about eight questions that were going to guide those three days. So I, I have literally spent days trying to figure out one word because one word can change a question. And um, I'll, I'll give you a quick example of how valuable or important I think questions are. So I'm looking at the screen. You're wearing glasses right now. I'm wearing contact lenses. You know, the, the first thing when we sit down and, and ask, okay, what should we be doing in this organization is we... We make sure we're all clear on the importance of our questions. And just like the glasses that you're wearing, questions have something called the focus of frames. And that the moment you put that lens in front of your eyes, or the moment we ask a question, before you even open your eyes, what you see and how well you're going to see it is already transformed. And before we even ask, before we even find the answers to those questions, our future is changed because the question literally dictates and determines what we look for, what we talk about, what we create together. So we're, we're, we really believe that questions are important and, um, and we have to learn kind of which types of questions are going to bring out our very best. And there's questions about the past. How can we learn from our past? How, there's questions about the future. What kind of future do we want to create, whether individually or collectively? And then questions about the present. What do we want to do right now to bring the best of our past into the future? Um, and really, every one of those types of questions, we like to say, is a story. 
it's a story that lives inside of our minds individually, but also collectively. People ask, you know, how do you define culture? And there's all these like textbook definitions and, and I agree with all them, but, but like the ground level truth is it's really just the stories that we tell each other and ourselves and the world about who we are, what we're doing and why we're doing it. So um, I could keep talking about questions, obviously, but uh, you might have another question for me. I, I honestly could listen to you talk about questions for quite a, a long time, I think. Um, I love that what you said about the just the importance of frames and how we see the world and kind of our own worldview being dictated by the questions we ask. Yeah. Um, I know that like there's a there's there's a thing in our brain called the reticular activator. So if once you buy like I my wife bought a uh, uh, she's an orange Honda Fit. It's very bright. She calls mm-hmm. it the Mystic Turd. Um, so, <laughs> since That's owning great. this car, John, I see orange Honda Fits everywhere. Right. Because I just a, have a world, a world full of mystic turds, yeah, which is the world I want to live in. But it just, it just speaks to the importance of frames. And if you're asking yourself questions, like positive questions, how can I be successful? How can I create more opportunities? How can I serve more people? You're going to start seeing answers to those questions. But if you're asking yourself questions like, why is this suck so bad? Why do I have to wait? What, like what's in it for me? Those are the answers you're starting to get. Yeah, you're totally right. I'll, I'll give you a real example of this. And, you know, if there's some sort of practical takeaway here, I, I think that's in some ways a goal. Um, uh, we got a phone call last year. Uh, in fact, I just got an email from them this morning about taking this to another level. But I, we got a phone call last year from an engineer uh, in Munich who is a, I'm just going to say he's a leader within the, um, the self-driving division for BMW. And he had shared with me, he said, uh, you know, we, we do amazing work. We're the world leader in, in premium automobiles uh, and everybody knows that. And, and this particular division is facing a, a set of complex, sophisticated, systemic challenges that are literally, they're actually unimaginable for people like me. And you. Like, <laughs> most people can never comprehend the complexity and sophistication of what the self-driving division of BMW is actually trying to solve. I eventually got to go out there and spend, you know, several weeks immersed and it's totally mind-blowing. But the very first conversation we had, I'll give you an example of what you just said about how important the frame is. You know, the, 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 when they first reached out, they said, we've done some research and, and we really like your method. And, and I said, well, what do we want to work on, right? Because we don't, we don't just do training. We, we solve a real problem or capture a real opportunity. And they said, well, what we want to work on is in the face of all this complexity, um, you know, there's, and I'm paraphrasing it. These are not their exact words. Um, But essentially what they wanted to work on is in the face of all this complexity and challenge and reorganization, you know, how do we, how do we get it so that we don't struggle to work together? We got the smartest people in the world. How do we just make sure we're not struggling to work together? And again, I'm paraphrasing. And what I shared with him is I said, well, listen, I said, I think our method is a good fit for what you want. I said, however, um, before we come out there, the actual frame or the reason that we're even going to work together uh, needs to be a very well-designed question. I can't fly all the way out there and, and stand in front of your, your engineers and say, I'm here so that you no longer struggle working together because that frame is actually how in many organizations or families or even just in our own minds, and there's an evolutionary basis for why it is that we are so fixated on what's wrong, what's broken, what's missing, what's not working. That's what kept us alive, right? So that, that's the norm, right? Like as many would suggest that in most organizations, most groups of people, 
the Pareto principles at play. At least 80% of all conversations are unconsciously just driven by noticing what's not working. And there's a, what we're now learning that we never knew from uh, neurosciences and the psychology and, and behavior, human behavior sciences. What we now understand is that when we sit there and we start from and then dwell in what's wrong, and we call that the deficit gap, um, there's some unintended consequences of that, that now that we understand those, we're realizing we, we need to immediately change the very first question we ask. Because those consequences are we actually, the whole problem we're trying to solve, we're going to be less intelligent based on what it does in the brain when we really dwell on the problems. We're also going to become more disconnected from each other. Our relationships struggle when we're dwelling in a place of deficit. And, there's, and there's, so there's a whole list of systemic issues. So I, I explain this to these German engineers, and these guys are really smart. He's like, okay, I'm going to come back to you. They come back. It may have been a day later. And he says, we got it. We're, here's the headline. Here's the title. Here's the, the, the first slide of why you're coming out. So it's, it's not so that we don't struggle. He said, we're coming out here so that we can elevate our conversational operating system to tap into our highest collective intelligence. And I said, that is a much better first question. You know, how do we upgrade our conversations to tap our collective? And that literally was literally the the contract is I'm coming out there to help to introduce a method for them to up-level the conversations they have to, to dramatically increase their collective intelligence. So that's a lot more aspirational, but it's still grounded in the real problem. It's just instead of dwelling in the problem, we're not ignoring it. We're asking, what is it that we really want? And then for the next several days, all the conversations are guided by strength-based questions. For example, when have you been at your best? in teams and as groups and as an organization. And then we study all the stories of when they've been at their best because we operate with an assumption that within any person or group of people, there are things that are working. And we could look at what's not working or we could build on our strengths so much so that the weaknesses become irrelevant, which that Peter Drucker's definition of leadership was to, make the, to align the strengths so much so that weaknesses become irrelevant. And that really works. And, the, and then we just keep going from there. But. Um, I'm just building off your observation that, um, you know, focusing on problems versus aspirations is just one example of how important it is to frame the way we think and the way we talk. That's awesome. That's a, there's a lot of great information in there too, John. And I was going to ask you a little bit, I know you have an entire certification based around asking and crafting the right questions. And even though I don't necessarily work at, for BMW or for NASA or anything like that, how can I, as a small business owner, as a, as a husband, as a father, start crafting the right questions to ask my family, the people around me, um, on a daily basis to create these positive frames? Do you have any, do you have any quick tips? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think a good starting point is for, somebody, is for anybody who's listening um, to, to pause, right? Like, you know, there's an interesting saying in our, in our facilitator community that we teach our facilitators is, and we talk about something called the speed of patience um, because there's a, there's a counterintuitive thought, especially in, in the business world, that, hey, the faster we get things done, the better off we're going to be. Um, but what we find is that, that this desire for efficiency often leads to the most ineffective long-term and short-term outcomes. So when I say pause, we have to remember that on a machine, if I push pause, it stops working. On a human being, when I push pause, that's when the best work starts working. Mm. And, so, and so the first thing I'll say is, look, I can, I can rattle off all sorts of questions, but somebody has to really value what we're talking about so much so that for me, when I drive home today, before I walk into the house, 
and maybe I'm using my commute. But sometimes I need to literally sit in the car in the driveway and, and say to myself and start with myself and say, hey, what questions do I need to ask of myself to be in the best possible state when I walk in the room? In fact, that could even be the, the beginning of the question. Like, hey, how do I want to show up right now, right? Or when have I been at my best as a dad when I walk home at the end of the day? Because by the way, I could give you some great stories of when I've been at my worst, uh, <laughs> when I get home from work, right? It's, you know, and, and everyone who works and comes home, they have their stories of when they brought their work home, they brought their stress home, they brought their anxiety home, and they took it out on their family and their wife. There's a saying that if you want to figure out what you need to work on, you just need to ask somebody's family. They'll tell you what that person needs to work on, right? Because um, those people often get the worst side of us. So, so that's an example where I just start with myself. Like, when have I been at my best? And why is it important that when I walk in this door right now, I bring my best, highest, most loving and caring self to my family? Why does that matter? It matters because this, is, this moment will change the next moment and every moment after that. It matters because one day I'll be on, and these are just answers that I might invent on the drive home, right? And, and so someone who's listening to this right now goes, oh yeah, that's really interesting. But here's the whole point. Oftentimes we're not ready or willing or just able to actually pause and let ourselves ask the question and let ourselves listen to the answers as they emerge, right? Because if I, if I actually sit here and ask, why is it important? that I show up in a loving, caring, empathetic, playful way when I walk in the door, and then I actually wait for the highest answers to arrive, because that's what's called a why or a purpose question, right? And the interesting thing about a purpose question is, um, you know, I actually have freedom of choice as to how I answer that. I could say, it's important because I should just be a good dad and not be a dick, right? Great, <laughs> that's an answer, sure. There's, not, it's, there's nothing wrong with that. Or I could say, it's important because um, I want my family to have a good evening. Or I could say it's important because uh, every moment I'm setting a model that changes the rest of the future of my family's life. Every answer is true. But one of those answers has a level of depth that's going to wake me up to maybe be a little more conscious as to how I walk in the door. And maybe that's all I need to do is say, why is it important? right? That's, that's a, always a starting question. There's six stories that we talk about in an organization or a person. And why is one of the transcendent stories? But then I might ask myself, when have I been at my best? Or when was a time when the way I walked in the door, oh, you know what? There was a time where when I came in, I put everything down. I hid my phone in the car. I grabbed my kids and we wrestled and we tickled right away, like whatever, right? So I can reconnect to when I've been at my best and then ask, what did I bring to those moments? So I could bring those to this moment now. I could ask a question about, you know, I could ask an imagination question. I could say, if I were to imagine 20 minutes from now that my family, after I walk in the door, and, and it, whoever's listening, you could retranslate all this. It's not about your family. It could be about your office. It could be the next customer you talk to, right? So, hey, if I, were to, if I could wave a magic wand and 20 minutes from now, any three things were magically possible, what would I love to see happening? I'd love to see myself present. I'd love to see myself and my family laughing and smiling and playing. And I'd love to see myself modeling in front of my kids the love for my wife that I had the day that I asked her to marry me, right? Now, I'm actually, as I'm inventing these answers right now, I have a voice in my head that's saying, shit, this is really good stuff. You should actually do half of what you're saying on Nate's podcast here, right? Like how many I'm, of us are I'm coaches? getting chills right now. That's, this is awesome, John. Yeah, well, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm allowing myself to pause. And I, I, fortunately, I know enough about asking questions. 
and I'm not afraid in front of you and whoever's listening to, to reveal some of the types of answers that I might allow to show up. And now think about, so let's just finish the story here, right? This is like those Mad Libs things where or it's like a fill in the blank, choose your own adventure, right? So think about option number one, how oftentimes somebody like me might show up at home is if I don't do any of this, I walk in, I'm pissed off because it would happened at work. I forgot to, I forgot to completely change my state. Um, I'm not present. I'm still actually checking texts and emails as I walk in. So that emotion that I walk in with is contagious. And now my wife's got to get, she's got to defend herself against it. My kids are walking on eggshells because they don't know which dad's about to show up and they're hoping he, right? And think about, think about the tone and the direction that that sets for the rest of the evening. It's very difficult to turn that around. Mm. Whereas if I'm willing to pause and do what I said earlier, is why we call it the speed of patience. I will actually create the kinds of outcomes, the kinds of conversations, the kinds of moments um, that are literally what I would probably say is the reason to live as a dad, but it's just whether or not I was willing to take these two minutes to ask and let the answers show up. And so this, this little story that I just created right here, um, you know, I don't do it every day. I, I try and remind myself to, and I could probably improve setting up some cues and some anchors to remind me to, but this little story I just gave you is just one microcosm of when we go into an organization, you know, I love to ask a leader, what percentage of all your conversations start by an intentional, well-designed question, right? A 10 would be every conversation. A one would be, I didn't even know we were supposed to do that. Most leaders, the answer is two or three, right? And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that, but it just means the opportunity for us to evolve as a group, a society, a company, or a family, or just as a person is, is, is there if we're not thinking about the, how we trigger the internal and external conversations that go on in our world. I really like that a lot. I think there's so much excellent information you just gave in terms of the purpose question. Why, why, am I, why do I want to show up like this? What's the point? The imagination question. How, like, what was the time when I was showing up like that and how did that feel? Um, I also really liked how you, uh, when you talk about the speed of patience, when you get out of your car, um, Brendan Burchard like, also has talked about, talks about this in terms of like triggers or framing, and he calls it his, um, his I think it's his doorway frame. So every time he passes yeah. through a doorway, he thinks about, when I pass through this doorway, how do I want to show up and why? And I think that's so powerful. It's definitely something I can start implementing in my own life that I, you know, like you said, I'm probably a two or a three on the spectrum, but yeah. So great. Yeah, and, and, and by the way, I, uh, just as, as a free resource to give to your listeners, if somebody's hearing this thinking, oh, this is kind of interesting. Um, we have a, uh, a, uh, an ebook that, um, and, and I, we don't have a sophisticated marketing funnel. So literally I'm going to give an email address. There's no like, there's nothing, there's nothing that's going to get sold to you on the back end. Um, there, uh, and there's not a fancy place to go. But um, if any, if you send an email to hello, at lead, the word lead, the number two, and then the word flourish, F-L-O-O-U-R-I-S-H, lead, the number two, flourish, hello at lead to flourish. And just in the subject, just say, hey, give me the ebook on this stuff. It, 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 we actually give all these case studies and a whole bunch of examples of, of four different types of critical questions that anybody can ask. And um, you know, if anybody wants that, just send us a note, we'll send it to you. Awesome. That's really great. I'll, I'm going to throw that in the show notes too, but that was hello cool. at lead to flourish, the number two flourish.com. Yeah. Say, give me my, give me my ebook. But yeah. I'm cool. Pick you up on that. Thanks a lot, John. I appreciate it. Yeah, sure. Um, no, we're, we're running a little low on time, but I wanted to jump in because I know you're a, an avid trail runner, John, you live on the edge of a national, national forest, right? 
We do. Cuyahoga National Park. There's some, uh, and it's, it's about 30, 40 minutes outside of Cleveland. We bring people here all the time and they're often surprised. They're like, I can't believe what an amazing place this is. But yeah, there's some beautiful trails right here. I don't think, I don't think Cleveland and then think National Park and trails. I have other thoughts about Cleveland. I won't, I won't share them on this podcast. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> um, um, but I was curious though, while you were talking about, about your framing and the, like the, the speed of patience, is there, can you share with us a little bit what goes through your mind when you're, when you're on a trail run? Is that a time for like reflection or is that? Is that yeah. Your- yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's whatever I'm going to eat after the trail run. That's one of the most, <laughs> yeah. that's one of the most satisfying thoughts. Right. Um, uh, you know, there, there's kind of two fundamental ways that I will approach a trail run. Uh, actually, no, I think there's three and I, obviously this isn't something I've thought about before, but, uh, I think I can, I can make it clear. So, uh, when I trail run, uh, I'm, I, I usually take one of three approaches. One is I'll actually dual purpose the run. Actually, all three of these are a dual purpose. But the first one is I will dual purpose the run as um, a, an, an active uh, meditation. Hmm. And I, uh, my meditation teacher is Juliana Ray, who's a 20-plus year apprentice of Shinzen Young. And their approach, Unified Mindfulness, is uh, it, it is the most fantastic approach to meditation because and their approach was designed 40 years ago to be able to be researched by, um, you know, leading institutions that we've all heard of. And uh, it wasn't designed to be marketed. So it's only recently become very popular. Um, but that form of meditation, what I love about it is I can practice it while I'm talking to you right now. I can practice it literally at any given moment, not just as a sitting practice. So sometimes I'll meditate and I can get into what am I actually doing? Um, Sometimes I will use the trail run to actually uh, look for an answer. So I actually like to bring a question with me into the mm-hmm. woods. And, uh, and sometimes I'll actually, I'll, I'll do some prep, like I'll read something or I'll write down the question or I'll look at one of my visual models or some of my journaling or notes. And I'll say, okay, what's like one specific challenge that I want to bring out here into nature where all the wisdom resides? And maybe on this run, I'll, I'll see what kind of answers emerge. That's a lot of fun. I, I love doing that. And then the third way I will treat the run, and, and this is the one I do the least, is I might dual purpose it and maybe listen to a podcast or listen to music. Nine out of 10 times, I don't have any headphones in. Um, and even when I'm listening to the podcast or the music, there's always some very deep intention to that, right? Like the 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 large majority of the time, in fact, I can't remember in the recent past when it wasn't for this reason. The whole reason I'll listen to a podcast is if I'm about to meet somebody or I'm going to interview somebody on stage at a big event that I'm leading, I found the best way to prep to have a conversation with someone is to listen to them having a conversation with someone else. Uh, So that's often why I'm listening to a podcast. And it could be because I want to learn something intentionally, but I don't like listening as a form of learning. It's not my favorite. Um, Or I'll listen to music just because I like it. Um, but I also, because I'm, you know, uh, kind of insane about this stuff, I'll listen to the music because I'm actually looking for music that we're going to use in our work. Because you've been to events that I've led, we very intentionally use music while people are doing different reflective and conversational activities uh, to actually support the learning experience. So those are some of the things I'm doing on my trail run. I could talk a lot about trail running. I love it. It's, I'm passionate about it. I run all year round. I love running in the winter, uh, snow, ice. Um, in fact, that's one of my favorite times to trail run because the texture, it's kind of like a video game. Like once you learn how to get the gear dialed in, 
you, you, it's like you beat the game. There's no one else out there. And, and there's some things about running in the snow that, that are very enjoyable. Um, so I, I'll, I'm, in fact, I'm probably going to go trail run in about 20, 30 minutes whenever we're done. Awesome. That's really cool. I love what you said about bringing a question out with you. Yeah. I really feel like, like I don't, I'm not a huge runner. I don't have a, uh, a national park to, to run in right next to my house. But even, even just going and moving my body physically, going to the gym, doing anything, um, I think that bringing that question or having in the back of your mind, what you said, I like what you said about writing it down yeah. and then going and doing something else. Like I find that even in the shower or like on a drive, totally. yeah. I can start my, you know, my mind will start answering that question if I have just given it the question to think about. So yeah. besides that, do you find that, that your fitness habit, your trail running, the pushups that you do on a daily basis, does that, does that augment your ability to, to lead to, to, like in your, in your family, in your business, anything? Yeah, I, I, I would say you could say it augments it. I, maybe, I don't know if this is taking it a step further, but I would say it, it inseparably is what enables myself to be who I am everywhere else. Um, and I, I heard you say this earlier, maybe before we pushed record, but uh, you know, I'm, I've, I've for, I don't know, maybe about maybe 10 years or so, and I'm 36 today, so I, I, I don't know when it started, but there was a point in my life where I developed a belief that there's really no separation. There, there is no separation. There's no insulation between what's going on in my physical well-being and what's going on in my mental, psychological, social, financial, in every other bucket of my life. There is no, any thought that these things are separate uh, containers, I think is an illusion. Um, and, and, you know, I can't sit here and say, here's all the science that backs that up. Usually I'll, I'll, when I research or study or discover something and then I, and then I see it to be true, I just let go of the, re I don't need to know anymore why I do this or eat this. Uh, I just, I remember at one point I was introduced to the thinking behind it. I started doing it, got the benefits and I let go. So I can't rattle off all the research behind it, but I just, there's no separation for me. So for me, managing my physical well-being, um, and I almost take it too far. Maybe, I don't know if there is a too far, but where I, uh, I, I cannot, I, I cannot accept a day in my life where I am not, you know, physically moving in some sort of intentional way. Um, and I don't, I don't have a routine where it's like every morning or at exactly this time. Some days it's yoga at lunch. Some days it's, it's treading water in the afternoon. Some days it's trail running in the morning. But at a minimum, there's got to be movement every day. Um, and that's just... That's like I notice. I see my thinking slow down. I can see my my emotional stability diminish. I can see every part of my well being um, kind of dwindles when I'm not moving around. So that's uh, it's uh, that was a long answer to you know question. Hey, is it important? Yeah, it's everything to me. That is awesome. I feel like I've I've had those same thoughts. I've never been able to put them quite so eloquently though. That. That was fantastic though. Cool. So, so in that same vein of, yeah, you, you believe something, you did a little bit of research, found it to be true, and then let go of the research side of things. Is there anything unconventional that you do, John, on a, on a daily, weekly basis that provides you with some results, either in your physical health, your mental health, the health of your business, your family, that, that maybe not proven, but you still do it because it works for you? Yeah, you know, here's what's interesting is uh, whether or not something's proven or true, I think is kind of arbitrary, like, um, because, you know, there's statistics are very funny, you know, you can, 
you can find whatever statistics you want. Like if I really just want to eat pizza, I guarantee I could Google and find an article that'll make me feel okay. So the whole <laughs> idea of proof and evidence and research, I, I always kind of laugh and I try not to laugh out loud when I hear people talking about the latest and greatest and this works. I think what matters most is that we learn to develop the self-awareness, the acuity, the, the sensory clarity to learn to notice what happens in ourselves when we do this experimentation. That's what matters. It's, you know, like the research we should only use to maybe motivate ourselves to try something, but then we have to learn how to pay attention to what actually happens. And so I, I'm going to tell you some things I do that, you know, somebody might say they're unconventional and I would go, well, in my mind, if you're not doing this, you're the unconventional one. <laughs> to me, I don't know how. So like, so my, I have three primary vehicles. Uh, there's kind of a fourth for how I move my body. Um, so one of them I've already talked about is trail running. But even when I trail run, I no longer, I, I can't remember the last time I just ran and I didn't actually combine running with other types of movement because I'm a big believer that variety is very important to the body. Like continuous change of what I'm doing, when I'm doing it, the, the amount of stress, the length of time, that that constant change keeps the body in a very healthy place. I think it's true mentally too. So when I run, I bring a rubber band with me, one of those like red rubber bands. I actually gave one out at, at uh, the Front Row Dad's Retreat. Maybe that was your responsibility. I don't know. But um, do you, you know which one I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. That's one, yeah. That's one of the ones in the bottom of the box. Yeah. So I bring that rubber band with me, the red one. And what I do is I have a trail run that has some great hills. It's got in, in about a four and a half mile loop, there's about a half a dozen decent hills, a lot of up and down, up and down. And every time I get to the top of a hill, so I push to the top. And when I get to the top, um, I'll often do a plyometric leg workout, right? Like jump, twist, squats, you know, lunge, right? And then I'll do a, a push and a pull, right? So I'll do a leg, a push and a pull, and then I'll run until I get to the top of the next hill. So so in terms of diversity, you know, I'm getting, I guess, endurance, I'm getting cardio, I'm getting uh, aerobic, anaerobic, I'm getting pushing, I'm getting pulling. And, and what I've noticed is that by bringing that diversity into every workout I'm doing, um, I get results really fast. Like I can, I can have a week where if I got sick or I just, for whatever reason, I fell apart. I can get back into shape so fast. And I think part of the reason why is that diversity. The other half is obviously what I'm putting into my body. Uh -huh. um, uh, so that's one type of workout. When I go to the woods is I'll do that. And when I'm at my house, I've got a trail behind my house, about a two mile loop. I have a stroller. I got three kids and um, I have a double stroller. By the way, anyone, even if you're not a dad, everybody should buy a, a double stroller because what I'll do is I'll put a 40 pound weight in each side. And now I can make that, that two mile loop. Now I've turned it into a leg workout that is massively intense. And I'll do some of the same intervals, but I'm strengthening my legs in ways that even that five mile up and down, I'm not because I don't have that weight that I'm pushing. Mm. So um, that's a, a little, little hack there. I don't like that. I don't usually use the word hack, but a little, <laughs> little hack. Uh, it's such a silly, it's, that's like a millennial word. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, anyone who golfs, right? And I used to golf a lot. I've kind of given it up recently. But, you know, hack is like a bad word. It's like you don't want to be a hack at anything. But anyways, I digress. Uh, the other thing I do is uh, treading water. And, um, and I, I go to my, my local wellness center. And it's me and a whole bunch of really old people in this therapy pool. In the deepest part of the therapy pool, it's like five 
feet, 11 inches deep. And, and they're all doing their like, you know, like little recovery movements. It's great. And I, I, I love these people. And I do water treading workouts that again, I'll go for 20 to 30 minutes. And what that does for my entire body, like every muscle uh, is, I've noticed, insanely more productive than a whole bunch of other things I've tried in the past. And then the third thing I do is yoga because um, I believe in all of working out. There's, and that's what I love about what I said about the trail, the push and the pull and the legs, right? That's what I love about the treading water is I can get a perfect equilibrium in push, pull, top, bottom in my body when I tread water, like perfect. Um, I don't know if there's a more perfect equilibrium that I could find. I'm sure there is, but that's the best I've found in one type of workout that gets everything in a very balanced way, right? Uh, because imbalance leads to injury. Um, and then the, and then yoga and yoga is just, I, you know, I, that, that's the one thing I, I, I cannot live without more than anything else is the yoga. So th those are the three ways that I'll move my body. And I do have a little gym in my basement at home and I've got a Pilates machine and a rowing machine and a spin bike and a treadmill. And I hate working out in that room. <laughs> I hate it. It's got a TV and a sound system and I hate it. Like riding a bike or running on a treadmill. That's terrible. I haven't run on, I actually haven't been on that treadmill in four years. I haven't run on any indoor pavement of any kind. It's, that's a disaster. Riding a bike, like that repetitive same movement, and there's little things you can do to create variety. I don't think that's good. I mean, if, if, you, if you got nothing else to do, it's great. But compared to diversifying and getting oxygen outside and you know, being able to look at the woods, I, I do like the Pilates machine because I can do some things there. There's some movements there that I can't replicate anywhere else. So. But I, I don't get on that machine more than maybe once a week or every couple of weeks. There you go. It's a long answer to a simple question. That's great stuff, though. I like that. You said unconventional. There's some folks that know me that if they're listening, they're like, dude, is he going to say it? Is he going to say it? Is he going to say it? Of course I'm going to say it, right? Because you only live once. Um, <laughs> um, but I pump 64 ounces of coffee up my ass about once a week. Right? Man, and, I'm so glad you went there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for those of you that don't know, that's actually the best way to take your coffee. Um, and for, for those of you that do know, no explanation is needed. No, but I, there's a, you know, I mean, it's probably healthy for me to at least give the story here. Uh, we can leave them hanging and then, and then everything just finished really weird. But you might get some uh, weird emails to that. Hello at Flirt. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be a lot more than just the ebook. They're going to want photos and you know, um, so, so listen, my, our, our mutual friend, Hal Elrod, uh, who some of your listeners might be familiar with the author of the miracle morning, uh, two, whatever, about two years ago was diagnosed with this crazy form of, of very rare form of cancer. And, and in his search for how to heal, um, he got a lot of diverse opinions, right? That's kind of a tough situation to be in where everyone says, do this, no, do that. And one of the few suggestions that he got most universally, um, talking to not only people who had survived, but different types of doctors, especially the holistic doctors was coffee enemas, right? And if you're hearing for this for the first time, you know, I'm going to challenge you to open your mind, like, you know, whatever, you, however you think the world works, however I think it works, there might be another way, right? And, uh, um, and so how, you know, for the first few months, I, it was just a point of laughter for, it was, like, how fun is it to make fun of your buddy for, for pumping 60, and, and I'm not exaggerating it, it's literally 64 ounces of coffee, you know, into his, up into his intestines, and, and then, you know, you let it all out, which if you've never done that, it, it's euphoric because um, it brings everything with it. And I made fun of him for a few months. And then he's like, hey, you get, and, and, then, and then I get home one day 
and there's a box on the front doorstep. And in classic Hal fashion, instead of him like, you know, fighting back, he sends me an enema kit. He's like, hey, if you want to keep making fun of me, you at least ought to try it. <laughs> and, and, you know, my buddy at that point in time, you know, he's fighting for his life. And I'm thinking, all right, everything I read said this thing is like, you know, next to Nirvana in terms of what can you do to your body. So I thought, I'm going to try it. And uh, now I do it uh, at least once a week. And I'm not going to sit here and try and rattle off all the benefits. Someone should do their own research. But that's unconventional to some. I don't understand how any of you live without doing it. So, Well, I've never tried it yet. But now that's, that's going to be first order business after, after getting off this call. But Yeah, I'll give you a pro tip. Um, Hit me. You know, you're going to do it probably in the bathroom. Um, and, and if you have family, you're probably going to lock the doors. Um, <laughs> and I got three kids. And, if, you know, the first times I would do this, it was like, it was like I'd bunker myself in like there's a, you know, like the Russians are coming. Right. And then I got so lazy. Eventually my four-year-old is just like, Oh, you're doing that thing. You know, it's like, you just give up on, cause, cause I, am the kind of parent that it's like, I actually don't want to have anything in my life that I can't talk about with my kids. Like mm. I, it, it, and that's a whole other conversation. Um, but, uh, if you do it in the bathroom, you know, you're probably laying down a bunch of towels. Here's my, my pro tip that I was getting to. Uh, the first few times you do this, actually every time, don't use white towels. Don't use white towels. You'll probably have to replace them. There you go. <laughs> that is good. That, I'm, I actually wrote that down. Dude, John, I want to talk to you for another 10 hours. You, are you just so full of wisdom? You got so much great information. I, everything you said has been impactful. So I really appreciate you taking some time out of your day. Jump on with us. Dish some wisdom. But man, it was good to talk to you. I appreciate it, Nate. Um, I love what you're doing and uh, happy to be here with you, buddy. Any, uh, any hot take? Any good quote you want to leave us with today? Any hot take? No, I don't know if I have a hot take. Uh, stay curious, everybody. Stay curious. Love it. All right, John, I'm going to link them up with you in the show notes here, any, um, but I really appreciate it. Hope you have an excellent day, brother. Hey, thank you, Nate. Appreciate it.